Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. Today we're discussing sections 2.1 to 2.5 of 99 Bottles by Sandy Metz and Katrina Owen. In these sections, we're going to start test driving the shameless green solution to the 99 Bottles song. And remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club and check out rubybookclub.com to follow along. How did you find the reading, Saran? When I compare 99 Bottles so far to Confident Ruby, I felt like with Confident Ruby, there was a lot to unpack and discuss. And with 99 Bottles, it feels so far like everything is so laid out and so just explicitly and thoroughly given to us that I found myself following along more and not really having my own reactions if that makes sense. Like you just kind of read it and you go, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah. And you just kind of go along with it. And so I did, I didn't, I found myself not having a lot to not reacting as much as I thought I was going to. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. How about you? I see what you mean. I was following along as well. What I tried to do, because there are certain parts where you're given a couple of solutions and you've, they're going to evaluate which one's better. And so I tried to think about what I would do before reading on. So that gave me a bit of chance to sort of think for myself. But it is a very guided, guided read mm-hmm. compared to yeah. Confident Ruby. Yeah, for sure. So let's start with chapter two, test driving shameless green. So in this chapter, we go into testing and this section or these sections do exactly what Sandy and Contrito told us that it was going to do when we interviewed them last week, which is that it gives us lots of data and evidence to figure out if we have several options, how do we pick which one to go with? So before we get into test driving Shameless Green, Sandy and Katrina give us a little overview of what testing is and how to approach TDD. So it was started by some XP programmers. And so, yes, they started this movement of automated testing. And in its simplest form, you write a test. This test fails because you haven't got the code yet. You write the code to make the test pass. So the test is now green. And then you refactor that code. So you put it into better shape than the first attempt that you made. And that's what they call the red-green refactor cycle, as termed by Kent Beck. And do you do a lot of testing in your code? All the time. When I was did a boot camp, we were taught TDD. And all, always at work, I've always done TDD. It's only recently that on some personal side projects that I've started to play around with code more just to help me focus on other learning things. Because sometimes when you're trying to experiment and play around, testing can hold you back. But this is only on li- like side throwaway projects, right. not on like work work stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's what like spikes are for too, right? To understand the domain and figure out what it is that you want to do and how you want to do it. And then when you have a better picture, then you go back to doing TDD. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're so lucky that you learned it in school. I learned it on the job when myself and my team, we kind of forced ourselves to learn it. And it was pretty painful at the beginning because I'm just not used to thinking that way. But then once you get in that flow, it was, oh, man, it really changed the way that I think about code and product. And it was it's really awesome. It's one of those things where if you haven't done it before and you start doing it, it can it can be tricky to convince people yeah. why it's good yeah. because the one thing that you notice is that it just slows you down. Yeah. And it's only once you're in the flow and you start to see how it saves you, how it helps you maintain your code, how it helps you do big refactors, that you really start seeing the value of testing. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
I love this quote here that says, if your TDD judgment is not yet fully developed, it's reasonable to temporarily adopt that of a master. <laughs> Which basically means shut up and do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, and have the confidence. Mm-hmm. Yes, and they actually quote Kent Beck that says, quick green excuses all sins. And when I first read that, I thought, wait, what? What are we? What sins? What are we talking about? And basically the quote is talking about how when things are green, it gives you a sense of safety. It describes it as having the wall at your back that lets you move forward with confidence. And so when you have those green tests, it gives you a little bit more of a safety. And it doesn't mean the code is perfect. It doesn't mean that that's you know, the end of the story, but it gives you a little bit more confidence in that safety net so you can keep building. So now we come to writing our first test. And so the next few sections are going to be about writing that test and getting it to pass and basically trying to see how we came to the conclusion that the shameless green example, that solution that we decided was the the better solution of the ones we tried, we're going to walk through how we got to that place. And so we discussed in a previous episode that shameless green solution is the best solution more because it maximizes understandability and really focuses on making sure that it makes sense and it's readable to developers uh, more so than future-proofing it and making it super, super changeable. And so the next couple sections are going to talk about how we write those tests and how we get to a place where we can actually see that. So 2.2 is talking about writing that first test. Which is the most difficult thing to do. And I know this from experience, starting projects, I spend so much time wanting to get it perfect and wanting to get it right rather than just cracking on and coding. In fact, Sandy and Katrina talk about this in this section. They say, while it is important to consider the problem and to sketch out an overall plan before writing the first test, don't overthink it. Mm-hmm. And I think I think this is one of my problems that I need to get over. <laughs> so for you, what makes it hard? What makes that first test the hardest part? I think it's because I've read a lot of things, a lot of books, a lot of blog posts, going through a boot camp. So there's a lot of academic knowledge that I have about the right way to do things. And that means when I come to coding, I want to do it right. I want to use this knowledge that I have. So I I stop and I think over, oh, what have you learned? What's the best way to do it? I recognize also that if you approach testing incorrectly, then it can lead to a bad project and you can end up writing tests that aren't useful. And so it's just me trying to say, oh, I, I know how to do this. I should be able to to write this correctly. Uh, when really the real learning comes, not from all the, the blog posts and the books, but from experience of trying it, learning from your mistakes later on down the line and then going back and making things better. Yeah. I think for me, the hard part is not getting ahead of myself. And as I was reading these sections, I found myself going, well, no, I know that's not going to work because X, Y, Z, let's just, let's just get to it. Let's get to the quote unquote, the real one. And so just kind of accepting and succumbing to the process and just going through the steps, even though I can see what I think is the end solution sooner than sooner than that first test. I think getting over getting over myself and just kind of trusting <laughs> the process is what makes that first test a little bit harder. So we start by sketching out a API for 99 bottles. And to be honest, I found this a little confusing because when we generally talk about APIs, we're talking about endpoints, and there's this assumption that there's an app connecting to another app, and we're trying to get that other app's data and information. So I found it, you know, it just threw me off a little bit to think of this as an API. Mm. Um, but once we kind of looked at the what we're doing with this API, I just kind of personally substituted API with, this is what the model looks like, and then everything just made a lot more sense. Yeah, so 
an API can actually have broad usage. So, you know, for a class, all the methods in it is its public API. But I understand why that that can be confusing because we typically hear of it in the way that you've described as an endpoint and we make requests. And it's often like it could be like a command line thing. But yeah, it's, it's essentially what you said, which are sketching out the methods in the class. Mm hmm. And so here we sketch out three methods. One is called verse, and it takes n, which is the verse number. Next, we have verses, which takes two arguments, a and b. And here we're going to return the lyrics for the verses numbered a through b. And the last one is song, which is what we hit when we want to return all the lyrics for the whole song. So when we look at these three methods, in order for us to write our first test, we have to decide, well, which one of these things we want to test first? Where do we want to begin? And so it makes sense to test a single verse first, because that would probably be the simplest unit. And if you think about the song, you know, it's made up of verses and verses is made up of verse. So verse really does feel like a good starting point because it's almost like your smallest unit of the other three. And so what we do next is we write a test for that one verse. So in listing 2.1, we see the first test. It's we're using Minitest and the first test is called test the first verse. We have a variable called expected and this just has the first verse of the song. So 99 bottles of beer on the wall, 99 bottles of beer. And then after we have that first verse, we call the method assert equal and we want to check that expected is equal to bottles.new verse with the argument 99. Mm hmm. If we think about how we should be constructing our tests, typically they have three parts. The first part is a setup. So that's getting things in place that you're going to need to do the action in the, in the test. Then you have the do section. This is where you perform the action that you're trying to test. And then you have verify. And this is where you check that the result you get from the action is what you expected to get. So when we run this first test, the first error that we get is that we don't have a bottles class. And with TDD, the, the general mantra or approach is that you do the simplest thing to make the test pass. And so our test is telling us we don't have the bottles class. So what do we do? We just define an empty bottles class. We just write class bottles end. Mm -hmm, nice and simple. And then you run the tests again. And this time it says undefined method first. And so the simplest thing to do in this case is to define the method first. So inside that empty bottles class, we write def first end. Running the test the final time, it says wrong number of arguments, one for zero. So this is saying that you've passed in one in your test, but the, the method that you've defined doesn't take any arguments. And so this underscore is what we have as a convention in Ruby when we have an unused argument or a throwaway argument. And since we're writing the simplest amount of code, we don't know what that argument, we don't need to define what that argument is yet. And so an underscore will do just fine. Which I had never seen before, actually. I didn't know about that convention. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Neat. So then we run that one more time. And now we get a I think the most interesting error we've gotten so far, <laughs> which is Minitest saying we expected these lyrics and instead we got nil. And what's really helpful about the way Minitest displays this is it actually shows the difference between what's expected and the actual output by prefixing the expected with little dashes and prefixing what you actually got with a plus. So you can very, very clearly visually see the difference between the two. Yes. And our spec has a similar, similar thing as well. Mm-hmm. 
And so now, uh, okay. And so now we can write out, and this was the part, I think it threw us both off when we first did the 30 minutes of coding. It definitely threw me off for longer than I care to admit, <laughs> was just the spacing and the line breaks yeah. and where to put it. Uh, and so this shows us where to put the line breaks and the spacing and all that. And once you get that right, uh, you can finally write def verse with the underscore argument and then write out the lyrics with the proper line breaks the way that they should be. And now when you run the test, it should pass. Yes. And this time it was easier to spend less time faffing with the spacing because we wrote the tests ourselves. Mm -hmm. I just copied and pasted it into into my <laughs> lib files. I didn't have to worry about it being the same. Yes. There's a bit at the end of section 2.2, which I really like, because when you're going through these the, the motion you could you could look at when you when you run the first test you could already know exactly what you need to write to to get to the test passing which is def first argument and then copy and paste in the first verse but it's really important to go through those simple steps no matter how experienced you are because that means that even when you get to more complex things you're always just trying to do the simplest step and you don't get lost trying to get to the get to the final solution and there's a bit at the end here that says you've got to wear two hats. It's the person writing tests and the person writing code. And the person writing tests, you've got your eye on your big picture. That's why, you know, we sketched out the API and we're, we're seeing how those methods are going to work and interact with one another. And then when you're writing code, though, all you know is all the information you've got is the test failure. And so you just do the simplest thing. And I think this is why when you're pair programming and you've got someone writing tests and someone writing code, that dynamic's really interesting because you are splitting those roles as opposed to having to wear both both of those hats. And I think something really interesting is that when I started pairing with Theo initially, we just fell into this pattern where he would always write the tests and I would always write the code. And in fact, that actually was unhelpful to me in the long term because I found that I was never, ever looking at the big picture. Mm. And so I lost, I didn't have as great a skill in sort of doing that overall architecture side of things, yeah, which is interesting yeah. to make sure that you're always doing both sides. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good tip. Huh? I like that. So now that we've gotten our first test to pass, we should be very happy and very proud of ourselves. But <laughs> we know that's not the full story because there's lots of other lyrics and a couple other exceptions. So the next section, 2.3, is talking about removing duplication. And here we're going to look at some other numbers, some other verse numbers we can throw in, see how the code that we wrote reacts to that and see if we need to make some changes. Right. When it comes to writing the second test, you want to do something that's going to break so that you can see that the code that you have from making the first test pass is insufficient. In this case, we have an obvious thing. We can test another verse with different numbers. So in listing 2.3, we choose verse 3. Mm -hmm. And the tests look identical, apart from the fact that this time expected is three bottles of beer on the wall, three bottles of beer. And where we verify, we say that we expect expected to be equal to bottles.new.verse with the argument three. 
And so according to the verse method that we wrote, we have hard-coded a string that has 99 bottles and then 98 bottles are left and that's basically it. So we clearly have no room for three bottles and two bottles. So now we have to make a decision and we have to figure out how we're going to handle this new number. And one possible solution, which is 2.4 in the reading, is the conditional solution. So we can say, if the number we passed in equals 99, then we'll return the string 99 bottles of beer on the wall, 99 bottles of beer. Otherwise, we'll return three bottles of beer on the wall, three bottles of beer, take one down, pass it around, two bottles of beer on the wall. So at first glance, this feels very readable, very clear cut, pretty simple, right? If you have 99, do this, otherwise do three. But one thing that we have to ask ourselves is what did the fact that we have to add a conditional, what did that do to the code's complexity? And going back to cyclomatic complexity in chapter one, which is one of the ways that we can measure how complex code is and just kind of get some metrics, some idea of the quality of our code, it talks about how when we add a conditional, that means that we're adding a whole new execution path through our code and that this increases the complexity a lot, which to me is very interesting because a lot of times when there's an exception to a rule, adding a conditional feels like a very quick and easy, it's like the duct tape, right? It's just mm-hmm. like, oh, we'll just handle it a different way. So it doesn't, it doesn't feel very complex. It feels, it feels pretty straightforward and pretty simple, but thinking of it as adding a new execution path just even the words execution path right just seem super hardcore that's a, you know <laughs> that alone means that we're increasing complexity so we should really think about if that's the better way to do things yes i totally get what you mean there but it seems like the really simple thing to do yeah sandy and katrina also point out that by switching on this number what we're doing is we are conflating things that change with things that remain the same in the mm-hmm. sense that we're switching on number, but the change on switching on number is limited to a couple of parts in the string. Really, most of the verse stays the same. And so we have to look through this code and work out how number affects the verse. There's this listing 2.5 called the sparse conditional, where by extracting out the number switch into its own conditional and then having the verse on its own, we can start to see that more clearly. So what I mean is we we now have a conditional saying if number is equal to 99, then we set the variable n to 99, else we set the variable n to 3. Then underneath we have the verse printed, but this time we have n bottles of beer on the wall, n bottles of beer, take one down and pass it around, n minus one bottles of beer. So n is interpolated in. And this enables us to see at a glance how switching on the number changes the verse. But in doing so, now we have these two very different parts going on. We have one part where we can see that there's a conditional, there's something changing because of a number we passed in. And then once we've decided on that and decided, you know, what that end is going to look like, then we're interpolating it and using the rest of the lines to figure out what the verse should be. So we have two very distinct parts, uh, which is why it's called sparse conditional, right? We're having conditional very loosely, just kind of sprinkling it in in one place and leaving it alone in the other. So then Sandy and Katrina point out that we could continue down this path 
if we were to write the test for verse 4, 5, and 6, we'd essentially have more branches to our conditional, but the, the verse bit would stay the same. And so we have, in effect, 97 identical verses. It's kind of a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> and it's also enough to help us say that we have enough here to, to make a general abstraction. Mm-hmm. So we go to listing 2.6, where called interpolation, and this rewrites the verse method. This time, we pass in an argument called number, and then we simply have the verse in there, and it says number bottles of beer on the wall, number bottles of beer, take one down, pass it around, number minus one bottles of beer. So we don't have that condition anymore switching on a number. By abstracting that out in the previous listing, we can see that interpolation is sufficient to cover the first 97 verses of the song. So my question for you, Nadia, is when you think about the way you would have done this on your own, I think the 2.4, the conditional, is like a, a pretty straightforward and obvious first solution. And 2.6, where we have that interpolation, is... You know, a really great place to end up. But that intermediary, that 2.5, the sparse conditional where we have part conditional and then we have part interpolation. Is that an intermediary that you would have thought of? No, I was fascinated by 2.5. Yeah, same. Because this was a really simple example, but I can imagine how it can be so powerful for trying to help you find the right abstraction. I would, I would have never done that before and I would have never probably done it un- until seeing it in this book. And so now I'm going to be looking for opportunities to separate out those, you know, the thing that you're switching on and seeing if an obvious abstraction becomes evident. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was my reaction too. I saw that and I thought, I don't, I don't think I would have even known that there was an intermediary, you know, between those two yeah. solutions. So it was interesting to see all those little steps that Sandy and Katrina are taking to get us to a good place in our code. Right. In fact, even Sandy and Katrina say here, like, get left your own devices. You might go straight to two point six. Right. Yeah. And that's that's where it's the sort of problem case where you're jumping to interpolation because although it's fine in this case. You know, later on and in other problems, it's not fine to go straight there because you end up making the wrong, wrong abstraction. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I would definitely do the, the 2.4 first and then go to 2.6. But now we know about 2.5. Mm-hmm. And so we talk a little bit about why 2.6 is so powerful. And it says that as the tests get more specific, the code gets more general. And that's usually a pretty good sign. When we were talking about the 2.5 solution or even the 2.4 solution, with every new additional line number, we'd have to create yet a new conditional, yet a new path. Um, and that's and that's obviously, you know, not a very good thing. We're going to end up with a super, super long method. But with that interpolation, we can reuse it for a, a good number of lines, which is makes it very powerful. Yes. So now that we have these three options, 2.4, 2.5, 2.6, the question that Sandy and Katrina ask us is, which is simplest? And to me, this was a very powerful question because I think up until this chapter, I had always confused simplest with easiest or most obvious. And so to me, the conditional is 
you know, it is just like the most straightforward kind of the, yeah, if this doesn't work, let's just do this other thing. You know, it just feels like the, the easiest, most obvious one, but that doesn't mean that it's the simplest in terms of code. And so now we're going to look at some of the metrics we talked about early on with source lines of code, flog score, and cyclomatic complexity to help us answer that question. Yes, we have a very helpful table that Sandy and Katrina have laid out for us with listing 2.4, 2.5, and 2.6. And it's got the three metrics that we looked at last week, source lines of code, flog score, and cyclomatic complexity. So with the conditional, it's got source lines, it's got the most source lines of code at 15, flog score of 9.2, cyclomatic complexity of two. Sparse conditional has one fewer line at 14. Flock totals a couple of points lower at 7.4 and the same cyclomatic complexity of two. And interpolation has around half the number of lines at seven. Again, another couple of points lower on the flock score at 5.1 and a cyclomatic complexity of one because, of course, we're just printing the verse. There's no second branch of execution. And so it's pretty straightforward here that from the three metrics that we've explored previously, interpolation is wins for the, the simplest. Mm-hmm. Then we have an interesting section on transformations. I like the sentence here, which says that intuition is merely an unconscious prodding to follow an unarticulated rule. That's hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> you did a great job. But I found it quite poetic. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I think it's so true, whether we're talking about coding or life, you know, when we have that that gut feeling, that thing that makes us go, oh, you should do this instead of that. I think that's exactly what it is. It's a rule that we haven't quite put words to, we haven't quite named, but is there somewhere left to be discovered? Yes. We're introduced to the transformation priority premise. Had you ever heard of this? I have not heard of this before. Have you? No. Yeah. by Uncle Bob Martin. <laughs> and I didn't read the blog post in detail, but in it, he lists out around 15 different types of transformations that you can have. And a transformation is defined as a simple operation that changes the behavior of code. So you can have things like changing an unconditional to an if, or changing a constant to a scalar. So that's having a constant and changing it to a variable. And he ranks them in a priority ordering based on simplicity. Mm-hmm. And so the gist of this is, if you look at the ranking, you always want to opt for the ones that are more simple when you have to make a transformation. Yep. And so if we evaluate 2.4, 2.5, and 2.6 against his priority ordering, then 2.6 wins again, because what we've done is we've interpolated a variable, which is the number into a string, which is the number argument into the string, which is the verse. And that ranks as more simple than introducing a conditional, which is what happens in listings 2.4 and 2.5. And so really, when we look at any of these metrics, including this new transformation priority premise that we just learned about, all these solutions, all these metrics seem to agree that 2.6 is the best solution of the three that we've talked about. So earlier in the book, we talked about duplication before, and we talked about how the principle of dry really encourages us to not repeat ourselves and to find abstractions, but that 
we're always in danger of abstracting too soon and too early and therefore abstracting the wrong things and the wrong idea. But here, replacing the duplication with an abstraction works. And we know that it works and we know that it's great for our code because we have support of that, right? We know that we have 97 examples that use the exact same rule. We've used uh, a a bunch of, I think it's, what is it, three or four different metrics to see how they rate. And just when we think of common sense, right, it makes sense to just plug in a different number and use the same lyrics because that's how the song works. So given all this evidence, in this case, we have an Enough to say that replacing duplication with an abstraction simplifies the code and makes our code better. Yes. However, it won't always be so clear cut. Mm-hmm. This moves us nicely into section 2.5, tolerating duplication. Because there are some cases where it's not so straightforward that we need to get rid of duplication to move towards an abstraction. We've tested the 97 cases that are all the same or all very similar and now there still remains verses 2, 1 and 0 which are all different. Verse 2 which we're going to start with is different because it's the first time that we have a singular bottle because when you have two bottles on a wall and you take one down you only have one bottle. Hmm. So we write our test. This is in listing 2.7 in the reading. It's called test verse 2. Again, it looks similar to the ones we've discussed before. We have this expected variable, and it's got the verse, two bottles of beer on the wall, two bottles of beer. Take one down and pass it around one bottle of beer on the wall. And we want to check that bottles.new.verse with the argument two returns that expected verse. When we run the test, it fails because the last sentence in the verse is not does not match what we expect. So we wanted take one down, one bottle of beer on the wall, but we get take one down, one bottles of beer on the wall. So this is grammatically incorrect. We need to fix this. Mm. Mm -hmm. We can't be having this poor shoddy grammar. (laughs) So here we have two choices. We can either add a new conditional around the existing code, similar to what we did with 2.4, where we just added a new set that says, if it's not this, then do this instead. Or we can use the value of number in some way within the actual code. Mm -hmm. And so we look at example 2.8, which is called Stark Conditional. And here we look at what would our code look like? What is the solution if we wrap the code in a new conditional? So here we say simply, if number equals 2, then use the lyrics, two bottles of beer on the wall, two bottles of beer, take one down, pass it around, one bottle of beer on the wall. Else, use our interpolated solution that just takes a number and passes it in to a string. Right. So that's one option. The second one uses, as you said, it's very similar to the general solution that we had coming out of section 2.4. However, we change the last clause of the verse. So this time it says... Number minus one bottle, and then where the S is on bottles, it's now changed to say S as a string, unless number minus one is equal to one of beer. So essentially, when you're dealing with the number one, then don't print the S, otherwise print the S. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And so if we look at these two solutions, they're very similar to how we thought of 2.4, the conditional, and where we ended up with with our interpolated solution, which is 2.6, mm-hmm. where we could either do a conditional, like a full conditional, or we could do a full interpolation. And so, Nadia, I'm curious, when you saw the straight, you know, the start conditional, what was your reaction to that? That's the right answer. Because we, yeah, we kind of had a spoiler with shame on the screen. <laughs> yeah, we have. <laughs> That's true. And then, okay, so then what was your response to 2.9? Look at that dodgy thing going on. That dodgy that interpolation. Dodgy <laughs> so I tried to kind of ignore and suppress the fact that we already know the answer, which was spoiled in, in chapter mm-hmm. one. And when I looked at listing 2.8 it made me so uncomfortable it made me so uncomfortable the start conditional Mm -hmm. because i looked at that and it felt like it was making the number two too important like it 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 was it was changing based on this idea that what was being passed in was number two or anything else and to me visually it just suggested that you know bottles 99 to three were all you know perfectly fine and then if you get to two something something crazy just happened you know what i mean like it just it told a different story than than how i felt about the bottles of beer can i just say it's really cool you said that because that's a lot of what avdi was trying to teach us in confident ruby yeah exactly (laughs) so cool learning in action I remember things. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> that's how I felt when I saw that. But on the other hand, when I looked at interpolated conditional, where we kind of stuffed that, <laughs> that dodgy, as you put it, um, you know, interpolation, I thought, ah, that, that looks gross. Like it doesn't, it, it to me, it, it fits better with the feeling of mm-hmm. the song, but it just looked really gross to look at. It was also the solution that I came up with when we did our 30 minutes. So, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I have an emotional connection to interpolated conditional. I guess it's just to say I also have an, an emotional connection to stark conditional too. <laughs> there you go. So we know what the answer is, but if we look at the metrics for these two solutions, we can see that for 2.8, the start conditional, we have an SLOC score of 15, a flog total of 10.8, and a cyclomatic complexity of 2. And then when we look at our interpolated conditional example, we have a SLOC score of 9, a flog total of 10.9, which is pretty Mm -hmm. close to 2.8. And we have our cyclomatic complexity score where it says Cycru, Cycru, Mm -hmm. am I saying that correct? Cycru reports 1. And this is the part where we kind of see how metrics are not as straightforward as we would like them to be. Because Sandy and Katrina reveal that when we look at these scores, they're a little bit misleading. Mm -hmm. And so we first start by looking at the cyclomatic complexity score and how Sekuru, hopefully I'm saying that right again, uh, gave our interpolated conditional a score of one and our start conditional a score of two. And how that isn't quite right. And the reason why it's a little misleading is because when we look at line five, the part where things get a little mm-hmm. dodgy, mm-hmm. it says number minus one bottle use as unless number minus one equals one of beer. Even just saying that, you can see how <laughs> uncomfortable that is. That unless keyword is a conditional, right? That uses the number of value to determine what to do with that letter S. And so when we look at the cyclomatic complexity of one, 
it kind of ignores the fact that we have a conditional and we know that conditionals make things very complex. Yes. So already, really, they're equal in cyclomedic complexity? Mm-hmm. They should both be two. Right. The second interesting thing here is that looking at the lines of code, it seems that interpolated conditional is the clear winner because it has nine lines of code compared to the stark conditional's 15 lines of code. And we tend to think that shorter is better. It often means that it's simpler. However, one of the interesting things that came out of discussion when we first looked at metrics was how we compare metrics against one another. And it's really interesting that even though interpolated conditional has far fewer lines than stark conditional, its flog score is pretty much the same. In fact, slightly higher at 0.1. So Sandy and Trina say, let's look at why that is and what that means. When looking at line number five with the conditional, the suggestion there is that we want to pull out a abstraction around pluralization. And so Sandy and Katrina say, if this is indeed a meaningful abstraction, then what we should do is probably create a pluralized method. So they look at what this, the code for that might look like. So we, we have a pluralized method, which takes an argument of number. And essentially that takes out the, the S unless number minus one equals one conditional. And then inside our first method, we say number minus one, then we call pluralized number and then of beer. So we just essentially pull out that, that conditional into a pluralized method. I was so excited when I saw that because I thought, <laughs> yeah, that's what I did. And then the next sentence goes, this confuses the issue. It is a red herring. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> yes. And so this is interesting because they talk about the fact that really, unlike the last case where we had 97 examples, and I, st- I still find that very funny the way it's just like, you had 97 examples. <laughs> There's a lot of examples. Mm-hmm. In this case, we're working with incomplete information. So what Sandy Katrina say is that by making this distinction between bottle and bottles, we're showing that that represents something important, but we're focusing on the wrong thing by focusing on pluralization. And really, we only have one example, which is verse number two. So one example compared to 97, we don't have a lot of information. And so there's not much pressure to pull out this abstraction we should wait until we have more examples to guide us into what the abstraction should be. Mm-hmm. And Sandy and Katrina say that when you write something like this pluralized method, it's what happens when programmers take the dry principle to extremes as if they're allergic to duplication. It's quite, <laughs> well, that's, that's pretty, pretty harsh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When you when you uh, wrote your pluralized method, were you thinking, oh, duplication? Like, were you getting like a rash or something? <laughs> <laughs> I was. I didn't want anyone to know. Oh. But now that we're talking about it, yes, I developed a, a very terrible rash on the hands that wrote that code. I'm sorry for um, it's okay. exposing that. That's fine. It's about time I admitted it. <laughs> <laughs> But what can help us decide whether or not that duplication is acceptable or whether the abstraction makes more sense is asking a handful of questions. And so there are three questions that Sandy and Katrina suggest that we use to make decisions. One is, does the change I'm contemplating make the code harder to understand? And so the idea is that when we abstract correctly, that helps make our code easier to understand. And just by 
us reading that complex, you know, interpolation line, we can see, we can hear that it it made things a little bit less clear and and fuzzier, which is not good. Mm -hmm. The second question is, what is the future cost of doing nothing now? And I like this question a lot because as I was beginning to read it, I was expecting it to go, what is the future cost of doing something now? Mm -hmm. And it's, what is the cost of doing nothing now? So the default really is to do nothing Mm -hmm. and to examine what happens if we do nothing. Instead of saying, we should do something, what happens if we do something? So I thought it it was an interesting question that came with a very, very important assumption of how we should be thinking about these types of changes in our code. Well, if you dig into that a bit more, if you're asking what is the future cost of doing something now where something could have endless opportunities? So you could spend a lot of time mm-hmm. going, what if I do A? What if I do B? What if I do yeah. C? But nothing, it's one, it's it's like one, there's one way to do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you have right. many different ways, but, but there's one way to do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah, I like that. And number three is, when will the future arrive, i.e. how soon will I get more information? And this to me, I think, is one of the trickier questions to answer, because even the statement that we made where Sandy and Katrina say that we're making a pluralized method based on incomplete information, I thought that was interesting because I didn't see the incompleteness of the code. Yeah, I, I kind of thought we had everything we needed. So that prompted the question in my mind of, well, how do I know that I don't have all the information? You know, because first I have to come to that conclusion before I can then ask, when will I get the information that I need? Yes. So looking at 2.8 and 2.9 in terms of the transformation priorities that we spoke about earlier, they have the same transformation, which is they take an unconditional and they turn it into a conditional. And they have nearly identical flock scores and the same cyclomatic complexity scores. So the only thing that we can look at that's different is the fact that listing 2.9 has nine lines of code and listing 2.8 has 15. But as we've just explored, it's not shorter because it's got the correct abstraction. It's shorter because there's just a lot of complexity that's been crammed into a small space. And we know that we don't like this. It's code that's harder to understand and it, it confuses the, the important concepts that we should be focusing on. And we go back to the idea that when we're looking at shameless green, we're focusing on code that's understandable and not code that we can easily change in the, in the future. And so therefore, although we've got duplication and we've got that, you know, if number equals two, which you don't like a lot, Saron, in 2.8, <laughs> we avoid doing this premature abstraction. And so it is the solution that we have to stick with for now. Yeah. And I think the for now part Mm -hmm. is really important because one thing that Sandy and Katrina have reminded, especially near the end of this chapter, is the fact that this isn't the the final solution you know what we're doing is we're just we're waiting it out we're patiently tolerating duplication for now until we get to a place where we make the right abstractions later so you know that makes me feel a little bit better (laughs) knowing that we're going to move to a place where i can remove a little bit of that discomfort uh but that this is a temporary decision on our way to something that uh that is you know better and cleaner and nicer at the end great stuff 
So we want to know, do you do testing? And if so, do you follow the red-green refactor pattern? Tweet us your responses at Ruby Book Club and tell us how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. Cheerio.